Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To, he, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. Well, good morning, church. Fantastic to be here. My name is Marty, um, and uh, I'm here to bring you this word from Revelation. Uh, I'm up here with my wife, Trish, and our daughter, Lily, uh, and it's just fantastic to see what uh, God is doing up here in Olveston. So, humans love a good story. There's something that's really captivating about a well-constructed story. Some people love stories so much that they figure out who the killer is within the first 15 minutes of watching a TV show or a movie. I've got a friend like this, uh, it's really frustrating because, like I said, within 15 or 20 minutes, he knows exactly who done it. Other people, they don't have the patience for the whole story process. And they need to know how it all ends, and so they'll look it up um, before they even get there. Now, I fall into this category a little bit, uh, especially when the getting to the end process is long and drawn out. I'm reading a book series uh, that's 14 books long. Uh, each book is about 500 pages. And a couple of weeks ago, I was bogged down in book eight. And I just wanted to know if, if there was cool stuff coming up. So I Googled it. Boy, was that a mistake. Suddenly, I know how it all ends. I know which characters make it to the end, and I know who is secretly bad the whole time, and I can see how all of these loose ends that have been raised throughout the whole series and in book eight, how all these loose ends have been tied off. And as a result, I'd lost all interest in the series. And it's only through the encouragement of Trish that I've picked up this book series again, uh, though not with my usual fervour and excitement. This is what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation. We can read what the Apostle John saw, what he recorded in his vision of the end, and we know what's going to happen. 
We know how it all ends. And we know who's going to be there. Now, there's a whole lot that's happened in the book of Revelation so far. And today we're in chapter 21 out of 22 chapters. So we're right at the end. Now, amidst all of the imagery in Revelation that that can be confusing, we have a beautiful moment of clarity of what is going to happen at the end. Because God is tying off all of these loose ends of everything that's gone wrong in history and he's making things perfect again. Now, if you're still figuring out this faith stuff, or if you've avoided Revelation because it can be a little tricky, I really want to encourage you to listen in to what God has for us today about what is coming. Because the question that this passage raises is, at the end of it all, will you be residing with God or will you be in the fiery lake? Today we're going to unpack that in three things that are key to understanding this passage and key to understanding what's going to happen. The first will be a new best city. The second will be God is there. And the third thing that we'll see, who else is there and who isn't. Let's start with our first thing, a new best city. So if you've got a Bible, it'll be great to open it back up again. Uh, Let's have a read from Revelation 21, 1 and 2, as well as verses 4 and 6. Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And let's jump down to verse 4. He, that's God, will wipe away, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So when I was reading through this passage, there were two things that jumped out to me as strange. Why do the heavens have to pass away, if that's where God resides, and what's the deal with there no longer being any sea? Why in the new heavens and the new earth is there no longer any sea? Does that mean that there won't be any beaches in the new heavens and the new earth? Now you might be thinking that doesn't sound very heavenly. Well, this is where understanding what's going on in the background is important. See, in John's time, the sea was dangerous. Sure, it it supplied food and it was a good way to travel, but it was never really a comfortable thing. The Mediterranean Sea could storm up quickly and it could leave travellers and fishers in strife in no time. You see, for the, the sea for them, for John's readers represents changefulness and now in the new heavens and in the new earth there is lasting and final stability now the old heavens they will pass away along with this earth because they represent god's separateness his holiness and now 
At the end of it all, when he makes all things new, it is all characterized by his nearness. Now, we're going to unpack that more fully in a second thing for this morning. But for now, you can see that John describes, describes this new city uh, this way in verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see, this new holy city, it's not like Cadbury's new flavour of chocolate, uh, chocolate block, Caramilk Breakaway, which is just a mix of caramel chocolate and breakaway chocolate. Those are two existing flavours. Now, this city is something else entirely, something that has never existed before. But then it's interesting that Jerusalem is brought in. He's used Jerusalem to describe this new city. And he means to use it this way to demonstrate the continuity with God's promises. You see, God, God has been faithful to Israel. He's been faithful to Abraham. He's been faithful to David. And that city, Jerusalem, is a representation of that faithfulness. And so God ties off another loose end here by naming this new city Jerusalem. And then John illustrates this scene for us. He illustrates it by describing its appearance as a bride prepared for her husband, coming down from the new heavens to the new earth, see the order of events there, is this complete, this perfect, this final city like a bride. Now, I remember standing on the stage at my wedding, uh, waiting, just waiting to catch a glimpse of my soon-to-be wife. I was bursting with excitement just to catch even the tiniest glimpse of my beautiful and my beautifully dressed love. Now, what I felt and what I hope Trish felt as she entered the building, that's how God feels about this new city of his people. And I find that infinitely amazing, don't you? And then have a look at verse 6. The beginning of verse 6, where God says to John, it is done. This city is done. It's complete. It's final. You may think about your house. You know, if, if we knock a wall out here, if, if we put another bathroom in here, if we have an ensuite, if we, if we take out this counter, if we reshape the deck, this place will be a lot better. Well, no one will say that about the new city because it will be perfect. Not one person in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new city, in the new Jerusalem will say, this is great, but maybe we could put a skylight or two in. No one will say, this is great, but I really wanted a media room. No, we will all say as God's people, this was designed perfectly for me, for us. It's exactly what we've been craving, but we could never articulate. God made it for me. God made it for us. It is done, and I can rest. So that's the, the physical city. What's it going to be like in this city? What's its culture? Well... Why don't you have a glance over verse 4, 
and tell me how that makes you feel. And then have a look at the end of verse 6, and I hope that sounds pretty great too. You see, in this new city, in the new heavens, and in the new earth, there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, because all of these things have been reversed. So this is the curse from Genesis 3. And now this curse has been reversed because God himself will come near and he will wipe away pain and he will wipe away everything that's associated with pain. And here he has tied off another loose end way back from the beginning. Now I'm getting to the point in life uh, where I'm afraid of going to the doctor because they might say to me, you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. You may be at that stage in life already. The stage where the aches and the pains of getting old are starting to pile up. Well, rejoice. Because the day is coming when you will live without it. And this is absolutely something to look forward to. To be, to be motivated by this promise, to be motivated by, to pursue faith because of this promise of no more pain or death is not a bad thing. It's a good thing to pursue the things that God has promised. But I don't want it to distract you from the main attraction of these new heavens and new earth, as good as no more death, mourning, crying or pain will be. And this leads us to our second thing to see from this passage. The second thing to see is that God, God is in the new city. Let's have a look at verse 3. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, this is the best thing about the new heavens and the new earth. That God is there. Like I said, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. These things are great. And we will rejoice for those things. But the best thing is that God will dwell with us. Now, God's not there symbolically. He, he doesn't have a holiday home there that he visits once a year. No, this is, this is God dwelling in the city with the people. And notice that this is so important, that this, this loud voice in verse 3 wants to draw our attention to it so much that they say it three times. Three times this loud voice says in three different ways that God will dwell with his people. And this this is way more radical than I think we think. Now if you remember back to the start of the Bible in Genesis, God's walking around with Adam. But because sin enters the world, God must remove humanity from the Garden of Eden and from God's presence And ever since then, ever since that moment in Genesis, coming close to God 
has been a dangerous operation. Now, if, if we fast forward a little bit in history, even Israel's high priest can only enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, it's the place where God will appear, he can only enter there once a year. And he can only do that after some serious sacrificing for sins so that he can do some more sacrificing for sins. You see, there was a barrier. There was a barrier between God and humanity because God cannot look on evil and he cannot tolerate sin. This barrier between God and humanity was represented by a huge curtain, massively tall, massively thick, in the tabernacle. And it existed in some form or another right up until Jesus' time. And as Jesus dies on a Roman cross to be the ultimate sacrifice for sins, this curtain, this barrier is ripped in two. It's ripped in two top to bottom because God wants everyone to know that the way to him is open through faith in his son. Now, that's a really quick tour of the Bible story, but it's important to understand those parts so that we understand where we are now and what is to come. Where we are now is that the war, the war has been won with sin, but there are still battles going on. There's still pockets of resistance. You might know Admiral Karl Dönitz surrendered to the Allies to end World War II, but there were still battles to be fought because there were these little pockets of resistance, even though victory had been achieved. Just like that, there are still little pockets of resistance within us, within me, but ultimate victory, the war has been won by Christ. And what is to come is this new city where God will dwell with me. Now we do catch glimpses of God here. We do catch glimpses of God in this earth, in the beauty of a sunrise. Or we catch glimpses of God in, in the smile of a loved one. Now these moments are precious. They make our hearts swell with joy. But in the new city, God will not just be glimpsable. God will be everywhere. You will see him clearly. This, this separation that we feel of not being good enough, the failure of trying to live up to his standards, all of that will be gone and barely even a memory because God himself will be with us and he will be our God. Now you might be thinking, Marty, that sounds great. But how do you get into that city? How do I get God to be my God? How do I get God to dwell with me? Well, we're going to see that in our wrap-up, so hold on to that thought. For now, there's one more thing to see. 
The last thing to see is who is there in this new city and who is not. Let's have a look at verses 7 to 8. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. See, there are two kinds of people described in this section. There's the victorious that will live in the city with God, and there are those that are cast down to live in the fiery lake. Let's have a look at the victorious first. These, the victorious, are the Christians. These are the ones that have withstood the trials and temptations of all that's come before in the book of Revelation. And you can see that in verse 7, God says that the victorious they will inherit all of this, meaning they will inherit the new city. As he calls, notice, as he calls Christians his children. You see, we, we who put our faith in Jesus as our saviour, we have a special relationship with God. And in other places in the Bible, he also calls us his children, his precious children. And these things are the fulfilment of God's promise to David. Way back in 2 Samuel 7, where where God says of of David's descendants, I will be his father and he will be my son. And this verse, this promise, is also a fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. Way back in Genesis 17, even further back, where God said, as a result of this covenant that we're making, I will be the God of all of your children. See, God's tying off more loose ends here. Those that are cast down to live in the fiery lake, they're characterised by a list of bad things. And it ranges from, from the definitely bad murderers, I think we can agree on that, to, to the maybe not-so-bad liars, and, and all topped by cowardly. Why do you think cowardly is right at the top of this list of people that, as the verse says, consigned to the, fire, to the burning sulphur? Well, I think when you contrast it with what it's contrasted with in verse 7, you'll see that these are the opposite of the victorious. The, the cowardly have retreated. You can imagine that at some point they've chosen their own personal safety over remaining faithful to Christ. And now, here, they are getting their punishment. And the reason, the reason the victorious and cowardly are used is because the original readers of John's revelation desperately needed courage in the face of persecution. So cowardly is is not a natural shying away from danger, avoiding danger. That's not what John's talking about. What this is, is abandoning the faith when the going gets tough. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower, where he says, when trouble or persecution comes, 
because of the word, they quickly fall away. They're the, the rootless from the parable of the sower. And in this verse, there's a, there's a definite sense that this fiery lake of burning sulfur, or, or hell as we would call it, it's not just separation from God where the wicked can get on with doing their own thing just away from God. No, this is, this is continuing punishment. The sense, the sense is that it's, it's ongoing fire and brimstone and it's described here as the second death. Now, a good way to understand uh, what this means is uh, the difference between a bee sting and a wasp sting. I don't know if you've ever been stung by a bee, but it hurts. I can tell you that. It's painful. Uh, this little bee comes along, bam, sting it in the skin, and it feels like fire. But what happens to the bee? The bee dies, right? They've got one sting in them, and then they're out. Wasps, however, they're the dangerous ones. They can keep on stinging for days, and they seem to take pleasure in it. A friend of mine uh, was mowing his lawn last year, and he felt a sharp pain on his arm uh, as he went past the tree, and, and he thought naturally he'd just snagged his arm on the branch as he went by, and uh, he just kept on going. But... Then he felt it again, and he felt it again and again, and, and somehow a wasp had gotten up inside his sleeve and was just going to town on his arm. By the time he'd ripped his shirt off, the thing had stuck him, stung him like six times on his arm. Wasps and bees help us to understand what this second death is like. For the Christian, death is like a bee sting. It hurts. It really hurts. It hurts like nothing else. But then it's over. For the person that doesn't have God as their God, death will be like a wasp sting. As they experience the first and the second and the third and the fourth and so on over and over again, as God's wrath is being poured out on them. Now, I raised the question right back at the start. At the end of it all, at the end of it all, will you be residing with God or in the fiery lake? The question could be rephrased as beasting or waspsting. Because the concluding message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is coming again soon. And that means that he will judge the world based on whether they follow him or not. Now, if you have God as your God, if, if you love him, if you follow him, if you serve him, and you will reside with him, this passage is saying to you, whatever happens in life, whatever dangers you face, whatever pain you go through, whatever freedoms are taken away from you, God has something amazing right around the corner. But this something amazing isn't just for the future. It's, it's for right now because whatever happens in this life, you know, you know that God loves you. That he chose you, 
sitting in that chair right now, to be his child. He loves you. And there is nothing more precious than knowing that the God who created all things delights in you. That God looks at you and he smiles. Now, if you don't have God as your God, if if you're still figuring out Christianity, if you still haven't committed, then I think it's great that you're here. I really do. I think it's great that you're here and I really want to encourage you to pursue God. Do, do research. Look God up. See what is written in the Bible is true and it is good. And even if you don't believe that he exists... Even if you're not not sure that he's real, just give it a go. Ask himself to show himself to you. Because I know that he will reveal himself to you. You can start by looking around the room. The lives of these Christians will show you God's love. Because that is what they're called to do. Ask them why they have God as their God. Why? And they'll tell you. And I pray that they'll tell you about how amazing, how amazing it is to know God's love. And I pray that they'll tell you the reality of following God and how it's not always easy. There are trials and temptations and those can be severe. But I pray that they'll tell you that God always comes through. And in the hardest parts of life, he shows his love to us. Ask someone today about following God before it's too late. Because at the end of it all, will you be residing with God or in the fiery lake? Jesus is coming again soon. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you that he died on the cross so that the way to you is open through faith in him. I pray for all the Christians in this room. I pray that they would show your love to the people around them so that you would be glorified in their lives. I pray for our, our brothers and sisters, our, our sons and daughters, our mothers and fathers, our friends and our family that, that don't have you as their God. And I pray that you would show yourself to them through us. Use us as your instrument because we love our family, we love our friends, and we want to see them loving you too. Show us the way. Thank you that you use us, broken vessels, to preach your word with action and with word so that people put their faith in you. Show us how to do this. Uh, We need help, and we pray that your spirit would work in us to be 
your arms and feet in this town. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.